David R. Godin is the owner of David R. Godin Publisher. Well, is today. <laughs> Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. You're celebrating your 40th anniversary this year and uh, delivered a very entertaining and informative talk last night in celebration of that fact. During that talk, you spoke as a true collector. You identified books that you thought were particularly well produced, and uh, I'd like to discuss that if, if I could with you. If you were interested in your press, your, your company, yeah. how would you approach collecting it? Well, I guess I'd wait till our so more or less selected bibliography comes out at the end of the year and I'd get that because that will at least have the critical information about how many copies were printed, what the original price was, how many illustrations, and there's never been an attempt at a bibliography, and this isn't one either, but at least it will identifies, I think, the best books, at least in my opinion, that we've issued from a design point of view as well as from a content point of view. You know, none of the books, with the exception of the Lance Heidi, Ephemeron and the Garden, which is probably the rarest because it was in Century for the Century, are especially expensive or especially rare. Some, like Lines, the Olin Stevens books, now go for the high or the mid three figures, but that to me is not a rare book. They're still obtainable. Which, which is exactly what a young collector. Yeah, and and then want. you know if you could go in the Brattle bookstore with fifty dollars, you could probably walk out with two pretty good Godin books. Like what? Well, I think any of the chapbooks are are beautiful. I think um, Wreck of the Deutschland, which I showed, is beautiful. I think even medieval Latin lyrics is still around. We did a lot. You know, we didn't have short print ones. They weren't five hundred or a thousand. Most of them were two, three, four thousand copies. Mm -hmm. And most people take care of them, and although they don't occur that often online, the early ones, that is, the letterpress ones, I, I mean, I look sometimes to see if you could find Flora Exotica, they certainly occur. I think maybe you can search by publisher, and then by publisher you can search by title. And probably, in some cases, the limited editions are hard to find. For instance, in Flora Exotica, we did a paperback, we did a trade edition, we did a special edition, we did the limited edition, we often did three separate editions, so maybe the deluxe editions are tough to find. But the trade editions were usually the same paper, the same printing, the same binding. Maybe we changed the color of the cloth, but that was about it. Maybe the specials had a slipcase and the trades didn't, but the materials are the same, the printing is the same, the type is the same. So I think condition is everything, and I, you know, I would hold out for condition in all cases. I have trouble some trying trying to find them myself, even with you know perfect dust jackets, so we can have your own uh, archive. Yeah, I have. Yeah. When we have an archive here, to some degree, but I'm now at the point where I'm actually putting jackets on them, you know, acetate jackets to protect them yes. because I know we can't find the jackets anymore. I think the photography books are. I didn't show some of the rare ones, but we did the first book by Sally Mann, and that's now selling for three to four hundred dollars. It wasn't a limited edition. We must have done two or three thousand copies of it. The book is around. You it's mentioned last night that you were flabbergasted at how little you charged for some of these books that you put so much into with fine paper and. Well, I think it was because we never really charged for time. You know, yeah. we charged for material somewhat. We charged for. You know, the binding cost, we knew what that was. You also wanted to move the product, too, I assume. Yeah, 
We did. I don't think the price really was a factor in people buying or not buying the book. It was more exposure. It was the fact that we didn't have a large network of bookstores offering the books. At least in the 70s, we didn't. We probably had 40 accounts across the country, 50. I mean, today we have probably close to 1,000 or 1,200, so we have more people pushing books out. And I don't think marketing was ever either the rationale of the press's existence or anything we were particularly good at. A lot of them, including Specimen Days, would stay around for years. And now people yell at me, you know, why did why don't you have copies? And I say, well, why didn't you buy copies? You know, when the book was available for $25, which it was for maybe five years after publication. Whitman's commonplace book. Yeah, it was a gathering, really. It was a gathering of notes. I've actually got a, a first edition of that uh, published in Glasgow. Well, he did one for the English readers, and we actually quote on the back of our book his note to the English readers because it was published in England right after America. And actually, the English edition is far more interesting than the American edition. You're more in it than the American edition. So that's obviously one of the high points. You mentioned five books last night. I kept saying five. these were my five. Boston, Specimen Days, I think certainly the Borman. Borman. Um, the Short Life of the Ephemeron, the one that had that beautiful little round etching by Lance. The one I didn't show, which is my favorite, was a constructed Roman alphabet by David Lance Goins. I should have shown it. Another is Old Man Mad About Drawing that I showed the spreads from. And I guess probably I didn't show it, but Mary Azarian's first book. Farmer's Alphabet is a great book. I mean, it was a wonderful woodcut book. We did a lot with it. But it's hard to pick five. I could pick another five just as easily. The fact that you did that, again, puts you in the collector's mold because, you know, you, you're going after a list. This is what's so fun about collecting. And I find those lists very helpful. Mm -hmm. I mean, Gordon Ray, at the back of these books, both the English and the French, has a list of the 100 best, in his opinion. And he solicited opinions from everybody, including even me. And I think they're terrific lists. If you're going to collect English illustrated books of the last 150 years, here's a list that at least you can start with. Some you can still buy for $50. I mean, they're not all $10,000 books. What was the title of that book again? The Art of English Illustration or English Book Illustration, 1795 to 1910, Gordon Ray. Okay. It's a great catalog. It's this thick. It okay. was from an exhibition he had at the, at the Morgan Library, both of his French and of the English. You quote Conrad in your words from the publisher in this 40 Years of Independent Publishing, 1970-2010 catalog, and you quote him as writing in the preface to The Nigger of Narcissus. Any work that aspires to the condition of art carries justification in every line or something like yeah. that. You obviously feel that, more so about some than others. Yeah. But isn't that very much what publishing is about, leaving a, a legacy? It's about identifying great work and presenting it in a way that does the work proud. Yes, but sometimes you're provided with, as we were with the Hokusai book, you know, an embarrassment of riches from which to make a great book. I mean, you're making a silk purse, as it were, from a silk purse, so it helps to have a, a really good designer like Carl work on the book, but you'd have to be a real idiot to botch a book like that. But more often, it's really working out how a book can best be put together and presented and how the parts will fit and how much editing either you're willing to do or the author is willing to accept, sometimes they're not equal, to make a good book 
as good as it possibly can be. Not necessarily great, but at least better than average. One of the things also that's interesting is you've gotten into publishing uh, some foreign writers, and so your selection of the translator really determines how that writer might be greeted in the United States. Very true. I think the translations are critical. I think we've been lucky. So we were very lucky with David Bellos and um, Life because when I bought that book, you know, I thought, oh, we'll be waiting five years for any, anybody to be able to translate. It was very complicated, full of conundrums and anagrams. I don't know if you know the book, but it's a really difficult book. And Bellos, who was in England at that time, he's now at Princeton, the French department there, but I think he was at Leeds, just happened to have been working on this book for four or five years when we bought it. Unbeknownst to you? Completely unbeknownst to us. Mm -hmm. And there we were, controlling world English language rights to a, you know, a, a really great, truly great novel. The reason that nobody had ever bought it was because everyone assumed nobody would ever translate it, and it couldn't be translated. And the only book we didn't buy it for, because I was sure nobody could ever do it, was The Void, which was the entire novel he wrote without the letter E. And that I was sure nobody would ever do. Well, sure enough, somebody did it. And it took us five years to get the rights from Harville for A Void. But now we have it, probably the only novel in the English language without the letter E. Did you go to Frankfurt to get this? No. I went to the Office of French Literature and basically called them and said, you know, what's the great book that's never been done? Which is always a question you should ask, you know, any publisher or any rights director. Mm. Not what's the best seller or what's hot in the new list, but what's the best book in your list? That, yeah, what's the know, most you, surprising you omission? Would, you would most like to sell in terms of its importance or its editorial stature or the fact that you can't figure out why nobody has ever done it before. And most of them, if they know the list at all, will come up with something that's really interesting, saying, I can't figure out why nobody ever bought this book. I had this conversation with uh, Chad Post at uh, Open Letter, a small publishing entity out of Rochester University, and you go down the list of the greatest novels that have ever been written, and most of them are not written by English mother-tongued authors. Yeah, we, we have enough to choose from here, that's for sure. I mean, you have to understand that even Laclasio, who I, we always thought was terrific, the year before he won the Nobel, we sold 12 copies of that book. That's 12, okay? You know, yeah. the next day, we sold 840. Every copy we had in inventory, and we were back-ordered a couple of thousand before the week was out. But, you know, had he not won the Nobel, we would still be selling 12 copies a year of that book the impact of uh, a prize. Yeah, well, especially that prize. That's how has he sold uh, since then? Well, I think, you know, he got a great review in the Times. Everybody had to review Desert because that was his great book, or one of his great books, but the one that was cited by the Nobel Committee. But, you know, I think it will fall off. It's not going to continue forever. It's not like we published Bill Styron or somebody, and somebody suddenly woke up to Updike or Styron or O'Hara or some great, you know, American. What about the collector uh, going after works in translation by Godin? Well, I would go after the authors. I mean, I don't think we're the only ones who's ever done Laclasio, but it's more difficult because in most of these cases, the early work before we began doing it was published by somebody else. For instance, Athenaeum had a terrific list of translation. George Brazilla had a great list of translation. I think Harry Ford and Mike Bessie, you know, went to Frankfurt and did the same thing I did in terms of sniffing around. And it 
pays off. It doesn't always pay off. It really pays off with children's books. Just that first list we bought that included Child's Christmas in Wales, you know, that book alone has probably paid for three Frankfurts. It's not the only edition by any means. There are other editions of Child's Christmas in Wales out there, but it's really the great illustrated edition in color, and we sell a couple of thousand every year. What about uh, series or dust jackets? Did you get any partic- any illustrators doing a series of books where they were responsible for the dust jackets? Well, the only time I can think of that was, and I didn't mention it last night, but Swallows and Amazons by Arthur Ransom, who's one of our really major authors. We had Cynthia Krupat design the template, and we had Julian Waters do the calligraphy. So they're very recognizable. The spines are recognizable, the covers are recognizable, and people now really do want all 12 of the Swallows and Amazons. Then within this series, for instance, in the Non-Perel series, all the spines are the same. They're all set in Perpetua. In the Verba Mundi series, they all have identic- not identical artwork, but identical designs. So you can identify them by the logo, by the author picture, etc. So yeah, within the series we do, we try to keep the designs consistent. I noticed that you published a biography of Ransom just recently. We're about to, yeah. The headline really, or the title really caught me, the subtitle. The Last Englishman. Yeah. The Last Englishman, but there's more to him than oh, yeah. his darkness. and. Oh yeah, he was a very complicated person. I mean, most people, you know, think his life began when he retired to the Lake Country in 1928, I think, 29. But his life was really most interesting when he he was in Russia. He married Trotsky's secretary. He was defender of Stalin right till the end. He thought Stalin was sort of like Cromwell. In face of incontrovertible evidence to the contrary that Stalin was really a butcher who by 1930 was sending, you know, thousands of people to the camps. Yeah, Muggeridge was over there telling everyone, yeah, too. Yeah. yeah, and, you know, for whatever reason, Ransom really defended the revolution, thought the revolution was really totally in keeping with his egalitarian sentiments, never really, I think, got the difference between where Trotsky would take it and where Stalin did take it. So it's much more of a political biography of a guy who was really spying for both sides. I mean, what it comes down to is he was really trying to convince the English, contrary to the evidence, that this wasn't really so bad, Stalin really wasn't so bad, everything was going to be okay in Russia. And he was trying to convince the Russians, on the other hand, that they had to work more closely with the English in terms of getting them to believe this, mm-hmm. which they were successful in doing. I mean, we never interfered with that in that revolution in the least. Nor really understood it till probably 20 years after the fact, when the evidence really came out about the camps. Chambers does a great job. I mean, he's really investigated all of the correspondence. Ransom was damn near arrested by the G12 or whatever it is over there and put in jail. I mean, they were convinced with some reason that he was acting as a spy, you know, for the Russians. They're, both sides were probably right to a certain degree. All this from the man who gave us... Uh, yeah. Susan and Peter and and, and Titty. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Last night you mentioned William Pickering, the 19th century uh, publisher, as being a hero. Why was he a hero of yours? Oh, because Pickering really. Do I have a Pickering here? I don't think I have a Pickering in any of these. I have a great collection at home. 
but he was the really first trade publisher. He, you know, not in terms of publishing contemporary literature. I think Coleridge was the only person he really published, and Blake, whose Songs of Innocence and Experience he really put out the trade, first trade edition of. But in terms of making beautiful books for the general market at reasonable prices, durably bound, as I said, in cloth, he was the for the first time, there. he was yeah. the great innovator, and he brought back Caslin Oldface at a time when the types used in England were absolutely deplorable in his books. Certainly the ones that Whittingham printed. He began the collaboration with, with Whittingham in 1828, published four Pickering by Whittingham. But that was a collaboration that went right through his bankruptcy. And Whittingham really stuck right through him, and he was bankrupt. The legend is, or the the ascertainable facts were it was because he guaranteed the loan of a friend. The loan was called, and Pickering had to step up and pay it. But I think the real reason is he published these six great prayer books, which didn't sell at all in 1844, and then he did the Drummond Family History, which is this enormous folio, um, I think in 1846, and I think that's what drove him into bankruptcy. He had thousands of copies of them left. That and the Burn Euclid. I mean, he did many books that now are considered among the most beautiful books done certainly between 1830 and 1850. Shaw's History of the Middle Ages, all the great Shaw books that he did, History of Ornament, History of Furniture. They were fantastic books, and I don't think that they sold very well, but they were beautifully produced. It's, it's a bit like... Van Gogh living in poverty and his stuff selling for $90 million now. Today, must, oh yeah, must, but the uh, history is full of that. Yeah, you know, yeah. The to Machiavellis was the other example of, you know, terrible mistake, way too far ahead of its time. You know, nobody recognized that it was written in a language that nobody could understand. I didn't say it, but most of the serious books of the incunable period were not illustrated. So to do a book that was written in the vernacular that had illustrations, it would be as if a serious publisher like Harvard today published a comic book. I mean, mm. and put it out as a serious book, and nobody would be interested. I mean, why is Harvard doing a comic book? And yet today, it is by far the most expensive book to come out of Aldous's press. And ironically, it was the book that was used by Ricketts and others as a model for the most beautiful books yeah. that, that they produced. Yeah, the great Italian books. Ricketts, yes. Certainly Bruce Rogers, yes. Even Updike, I think, in his early period, yes. Morris was much more into the German woodcut books of the period. The Kelmscott is much more of a Germanic derived press than Vale or Arangi, which all look back, and or Bruce Rogers at Riverside, that all really look back to the Italian and French Renaissance. I'm speaking with David Godin about his press, his publishing firm, and about what to collect within it. I wonder if you could just talk about, uh, in, in winding down here, what you took from some of these great publishers and put into your books from, from Pickering, let's say. Well, I think the main thing we took is really it doesn't cost any more to design a well-designed book and to produce it than a badly designed one. I mean, if you're setting type, you might as well set good type, as Pickering found out. In other words, what specifically? What does that mean? Well, 
You have a choice when you do a book. You have a choice of margins, you have a choice of letting, you have a choice of the measure, you have a choice of the size of the type, and above all, you have a choice of what kind of type you use. And I think although the appropriateness of the measure, the size, etc., could be questioned in some of our books, no one could ever question the types we chose as good types. And it doesn't cost any more to set a good type than a bad type. You're paying for keystrokes, and you're going to pay the same for a keystroke of a bad type as for a good type. And really, you pay very little more for a good design than for a bad design. So you might as well pay a good designer, like Cynthia Krupak. Or, or at least find, you have to find a good designer. Yeah, but they're out there. There are lots yeah. of them. We've yeah. used them. I mean, Dean Bornstein is a fine designer. He wasn't there last night. Howard Guala is a really fine designer. Rocky was a great designer. Rocky Steiner. Yeah, we, mm -hmm. we really tried to spread the design around. When we did a book with CUP, we generally let Cambridge do the design. We generally let Oxford do the design. We didn't step in there and say, here's how you design literature to a friend. Mm -hmm. And they did a great job because I think they were really invested in it. And those presses tend to be more invested when they can in a way, design the product than when someone comes in and says, well, this is how the product has to be designed. It's like any, any good manager. You give it to, to the, the person to do and trust in their abilities, and they'll thrive as a result yes, of that. Yes, and they'll, they'll put more into it as yeah. a result of that, knowing probably that their name is going to appear and it is the designer, so it has to look good. But when we began, and this is true, and it's really been pointed out to me, with the exception of Knopf and Farrar Strauss, those were really the two exceptions. Our books really stood out as trade books. I mean, they were not priced any higher than the average trade book. They were definitely more beautifully produced, I think, or as beautifully produced as Knopf, who was really the standard. And Farrar, who were awfully good back then. I mean, they had a great stable of designers. This is when really you had designers on staff who actually designed books. But we didn't have competition from Doubleday, and we didn't have competition from Viking. Today, I think what's changed the most is the binding, and that's the most distressing, because the bindings have deteriorated. There's just glue and Yeah, it's glue paper. and it's paper. Yeah. There's not even a piece of cloth. Maybe there's mm -hmm. a headband if you're lucky, but for the most part, there's not even a headband. And the three-piece bindings are just three pieces of paper holding these books together with nothing but glue. Mm -hmm. You know, when we began, all books were sewn. We never considered perfect binding for a hardcover, maybe for a paperback. Today, we still certainly sew all of our major hardcovers. They're all bound in full cloth. They're all stamped. We pay a lot of attention to the stamping design of the books. We pay a lot of attention to the cloth and to the end papers, even to the headbands. But the jacket designs have become much better. That's where the money is spent. So there isn't really a difference or a distinguishable difference between a Godine book from the point of view of jacket design or a spine design. If you open up, take the jacket off, you might see the difference. Do um, you have a favorite cover? No, no, we have a lot. I know, that would be... Okay. Totally unfair. I got so many that we really, I think, did a good job with, mm -hmm. or the designer did. I guess, I don't know. You know, Amazon really is a good resource. They tell you how many they have. I don't know how good they are about condition. Plug in Godin, you probably get 15 million entries, but if you knew the name of the book or the name of the pamphlet, you could probably find it. But rare book dealers are very good sources for this. I mean, Boston last weekend had a rare book fair. Mm -hmm. wasn't huge, not that many dealers, 
But I ran around and I, f I saw Specimen Days. It was for sale there. It wasn't that much. It was maybe $50. Sally Mann's book was there for $350. Probably worth it because she's you know now recognized as a major photographer. But if you went around to the booths and said, what do you have by Godin? Probably most dealers who have contemporary stuff have one or two Godin books. And you just look at it and you figure out if this is something you really want to pay $10 for or $20. And I wouldn't collect all of them. I mean, some of the books have been dreadful. <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to... Which ones? I wouldn't pretend that everything we've ever issued yeah. from this house is, you know, a, a piece of transcendent art, which everybody should have in their shelves. Oh, I don't know, probably quite a few. The art books, I think, have generally been very good, but some of the fiction has been quite drab and mm -hmm. very forgettable. That's the content, I suppose. That's yeah, what you're but uh, you know, on. also we didn't do such a great job with the jacket and or the typography or whatever. But it's interesting you mentioned here that you quote Edward Land here, who taught me that the size of the company's marketing department is always in inverse proportion to the quality of its product. Well, it's a very interesting thing. The more I think interchangeable a product is, and books are fairly interchangeable. I mean, they're all produced by the same people. They all look the same. There's no real difference between, you know, a Knopf book and a Godin book in terms of perhaps the quality of the typesetting or the paper used. I think the analogy land use was soap. You know, if you manufacture dish detergent, it is to everybody the same. So to get somebody to buy Tide as opposed to, I don't know, Clorox or whatever the other is, you have to spend a lot of money in advertising. Yeah, it's just to like make water, too, yeah, you know, these to days. Yeah, to make people, yeah, I mean, water, it's, that's a very good example. Yeah. Water is water, so, you know, do you buy Poland Springs or Evigny? I don't know. But, you know, they have to spend a lot of money probably convincing you to buy one or the other. It's a final question, and that is advice to uh, collectors and also some of the joys that you might have experienced collecting books. Well, you won't like one part of this advice, but... Michael Sadler once said, the great bibliographer, that condition is three-quarters of any collection, and I really believe that. I think if you buy an inferior book, you're always going to be unhappy with it, and you're always going to be looking for a better copy. The Japanese have a saying, you pay much more for quality, but you only pay once. And it's really true. If you buy the best example of the book, you will never have to second-guess yourself. So I really think condition. Condition today now includes the dust jacket, which didn't used to be true, but I suppose it is true today for fiction. I think the best bargains are to be had now at auctions, because the information is so widely available and disseminated, except for the really rare books. The rare books that don't appear in ABE, because they're sold once every five years, so what you can find is maybe an auction track of them, but you're not going to find 17 copies, you know, on ABE. But once you go to ABE, and you see 17 copies of the Vale Press same book, you're probably going to gravitate toward the middle. And that's why I think mid-price books are in such trouble. Because there's enough of them around so that people who are in, in any way intelligent as collectors are going to compare the lowest priced one to the highest priced one. And unless there's a great difference in terms of the binding or the provenance or the condition, they're going to go for the middle, and I do too. Mm -hmm. I mean, I always ask the book dealer, is there anything bad you have to say about this? They're always returnable if you don't like them. I don't re remember returning more than three or four books in my life because I'm fairly careful about how I buy. 
And I think the dealers know that I will return them if they're not in good shape. But the higher price books, at every auction, A, I think you have to go there. You have to look at the books. Physically, I yeah. I don't always do this, but I always call the person in charge of the auction and do it for me. There are always some terrific buys, and you have to be there and be willing to jump. Now, the premiums make it difficult. You know, the premiums, when I began, were nothing. They were literally, you paid no premium. Then I went to 10%. It was 10% for years. And then it began creeping up, you know, 10 to 15, 17 and a half, 19.5, 20, 22. It's now 25%. And you really forget when you're bidding that you're paying not only a 25% premium over what you just bid, but you may be paying taxes on the total price on top of that, which in New York is 8.7% or something like that. So you're really paying a lot the opportunity to bid at auction. You better be sure that you're getting something you really want at a fair price. I'm never suckered in. You know, people say you get suckered in by auction fever or whatever. Mm -hmm. I've never found that to be true. You don't get emotionally attached? No, I don't. I'm really disciplined. I know that there are always going to be great books around. There always are. I know pretty much my range. Sometimes I may go one bid above it if I really think I'm going to get it, but I very rarely will go two bids above it. And I think maybe some people are just caught up in the heat, but I don't think you have to be. I think that's a a sorry excuse. (laughs) I'm not saying I can pay for Sometimes I buy too many books, but really at an auction will I pay too much for the book? I'll just say, no, I'm out. The greatest joy you've experienced. I think buying books at auction, and sometimes from dealers who have been very generous to me, I have to say, people like Ursus Books, Bromer Bookstore here in in Boston. They've been terrific. I mean, A, they'll cut the price, and B, they'll give me time to pay, which I don't get from the auction houses. So I'm very, very grateful to the dealers. And I always try to patronize dealers. I think it's really important to patronize dealers. Otherwise, we're not going to have any dealers around. But at auction, I'm bidding against dealers. I'm not usually bidding against other individual buyers. But I think, no, the best deals I've ever gotten Believe it or not, usually at the ends of auctions when people are leaving or have emptied their (laughs) pack sacks of money and the auctioneer knows he has to end it in 20 minutes. There was a great auction in New York where basically he got so sick of selling lots because every lot had like 40 books in it that he was selling the books by the page. He said, okay, now we're going to auction off page 84. (laughs) And it it was terrific. I got some great books buying by the page. That doesn't happen frequently, but I think it's really exciting. It's a discipline because you have to know what's wrong with the book. The auctioneer will tell you up to a certain point, but after that, it's really your taste, your judgment, other copies you've seen and how these compare to the other copies. Both in condition and price. Yes, being able to go to the Grolier Club or the Houghton, which I often do, and try to see the book before I go down to look at it so I have something in my mind to compare it to. Ray always gives you the dimensions, for instance, is it a large paper copy, which is often missed at auctions, or the small paper copy? You know, is the binding in some way distinguished? Have they missed a provenance? They often do. You know, it will have a little ticket in there. It's a Shuckberg copy. Nobody knows what the label is. I've bought three books after the sale from the Garden because nobody knew that the Garden was probably the greatest collection that ever came up at Sotheby's. It was an amazing collection of really important books. And they see the Garden. They don't know what the Garden is. This was a collection that was sold. It was called the Garden Collection. And it has a little book plate in it saying, The Garden. And, you know, they were all great, 
great books. It was one of the best auctions Sotheby's ever had in terms of prices. What year was that? And who, who owned that? Oh, was, man, it was very, very interesting. It was an investor, never named, who hired a guy in Cambridge who was a little bit of a nut, but a really very, very, very good collector. Haven O'More, that's who it was. Okay. So as far as books that you've acquired, what books come to mind that have given you the most joy in possessing? Oh, you mean as a collector? As a collector, yeah. The Kelmscott Chaucer, in a terrific over-the-top Birdsville binding, an amazing binding, a great copy of a great book and a great binding. I think that. I think The Four Gospels by Eric Gill, Golden Cockerel. The Art de Dressage, 1629, with the plates by Holler. I'm trying to think of a book from every century. I think the 1529 edition of the Ovid, printed by Jean de Tourne, the 1527 is actually not printed as well as the 1529, with every page with a different border. From ATN, the 1551 Greek New Testament in a wonderful Irish binding, contemporary. The 1544 Vitruvius, printed by Barbet. That is a great book in a, a new binding, commissioned by Dan Genrich. 17th century, Udry's Fontaine's Fables in four folio volumes from England in a great speckled calf binding. André Jam's study of the Grand Jean typeface issued in 100 copies with the plates by Simonon printed from the original plates. A great piece of typographic research and a great piece of printing. I have two copies of that. I have no idea how. A book by Granville, and I'm not sure which, but perhaps Les Fleurs Animes, I think, is his great book, or a great book, and The Metamorphosis du Jour, certainly. Of the 60s in England, I'd have to say A Round of Days, one of the great gift books that were issued, one of three great gift books, and perhaps later in 1872... The Millet illustrations for the fables of our Lord. I think that um, those were all wonderful books, but most of them were hodgepodges. There were very few books from the 60s that were illustrated by one illustrator. 1860s. Yes. I, oh, I know. From Pickering, certainly the Burn Euclid, 1846, and Dresses of the Middle Ages by Shaw. Not a large paper copy, but a wonderful copy. And the great prayer books of 1844. And the Drummond. Those would be my great pickerings. Aldous, the Rodinus of 1516. The Bersarion of 1514. And of the 15th century, the Jensen Eusebius in a binding by Arno Werner. The used to belong to the wonderful librarian from Williams whose name escapes me at the moment, but it was Divini's copy as well. Richard Archer. Divini to Richard Archer to me. That was a great book. Gee, that's enough, isn't it? That's enough, but yeah. I want to know which one you take off the shelf and look at and, and touch and admire the most, most often. I think we show the Burn Euclid because it's such an unusual book. It was another book that was totally ahead of its time. And he didn't sell any of them. And it's a book that you 
frequently take off the show. It's my wife's favorite, and, and I have to say that it's one of mine, too, because the color, the typography is so unusual. It looks like Malevich was doing this book in 1846. And I love all my Updike books. I think the Updike books are still as examples of contemporary bookmaking, and they're not very expensive. I think they're wonderful books. I take those off a lot. Bruce Rogers, gee, anything he did at Riverside is a terrific book. All the Riverside books. Of my own books, I think the one I look at the most is really The Art of the Printed Book by Blumenthal. I didn't yeah. show it last night, but it's a terrific book. I mean, it really is five centuries of fine printing, ending with Modersteig and beginning with the Gutenberg Bible. It's a great overview, very well written. Thanks so much for sharing your oh, uh, enthusiasms yeah. and, and advice on both Now go online and get the garden catalog. I bet you can find that. It's yes, an amazing will, yes. catalog. Okay, great. Thanks yeah. so much. You're welcome.